Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Light the fuse on the dynamite. It's election shock therapy. Here, reeling from Nobel Week, I'm Chris Moore. And joining me on this call are... Andy Bramson, Matt Cookham, and Mitchell Crum. Hey guys, are you avid followers of Nobel Week like I am, or are you just watching Squid Game? Uh, is there a neither of the above option to choose? Oh, Andy, <laughs> I'm watching, breaking my heart, man. I'm watching college football. I don't know what. This, yeah. Um, I, I'm sorry, you're breaking up, Matt. I can't hear you. Uh, <laughs> my team lost a game, so. Uh, <laughs> So did Alabama. Yeah, are you eating uh, like duck soup these days or what? <laughs> you know, duck eggs taste good. I like duck eggs. Okay. Yeah, here we <laughs> So I brought the crew together this week because, unlike my friends, I love Nobel Week. We just, for those of you who don't follow this, we just had this week. It's the week that the um, the Swedish Academy announces uh, Nobel Prizes for the year. There are Nobel Prizes in chemistry and physics and medicine and biology and literature and the Peace Prize, which is by far the most famous. And then um, for us, uh, the Nobel Prize in economics. Now, we're, none of us are economists. So, and most people pay the most attention to the Nobel Peace Prize, which this year went to Maria Ressa and Dmitry Mirtov, both of whom are journalists. Uh, Ressa is in the Philippines, Mirtov is in uh, Russia. And in both cases, these are journalists who've written extensively about freedom of expression and freedom of speech uh, in increasingly authoritarian environments, namely Duterte's Philippines and Putin's Russia. So there's very much a political statement being made with the Peace Prize this year. But that's really all I have to say about the Peace Prize. What I'm really interested in is who won the the Nobel in economics. And so this year's Nobel winners in economics are three people. David Card, uh, an American for his empirical contributions to labor economics, and then Joshua Angrist and Guido Imbens for the methodological contributions, the analysis of causal relationships. And here I should mention that uh, Nobels are never awarded posthumously. So sometimes key important collaborators on career-defining research do not receive Nobels, even though their names essentially are sort of ghostly written in the citations. Uh, David Card's frequent co-author was Alan Kruger. And Alan Kruger regularly served on the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and he and David Card off wrote um, very wide-ranging and interesting studies on things ranging from the minimum wage to uh, labor disputes to terrorism and discussed uh, economic applications or economic principles underlying certain kinds of human behaviors. They, along with Angus and Imbens, really put forward the idea of natural experiments, the idea that economists shouldn't just build 
hypothetical or abstract models of human behavior, but should rather actually study how humans actually operate. And so a famous study that Card and Kruger put together uh, involved the behavior of employers who ran fast food restaurants along the border between New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Basically, one of those two states raised their minimum wage while the other kept their minimum wage static. And what Card and Kruger did was looked at uh, dozens of fast food restaurants right along the corridor between the two states, one of whom now had to pay their employer, their employees more than the other one did. And they hypothesized we would expect to see higher unemployment rates essentially as, as the cost of wages go up. And what they found was that didn't happen. Essentially, that there is some elasticity into in, in wage uh uh, wage paying. So um, this led to essentially validation of some liberal policies that suggested that um, the minimum wage could be raised without dramatically increasing unemployment within certain parameters, of course, certain boundaries and so forth. So um, that's my favorite example of a natural experiment. Andy, uh, where do you see natural experiments show up in comparative politics? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's there's three ways that you get experiments or like sort of implied experiments in comparative politics studies. One is just to compare two cases, right? Which essentially makes this assumption. These are comparable. We can make a, you know, we, we think there's enough similarities going on. And you can think of Theta Scotchpool's famous 1979 book on social revolutions, which is widely critiqued because it turns out people say, eh, are, you know, are the, are the revolutions in Russia in 1917 and China in 1949 and France in 1789? Are they really that similar? <laughs> Probably not. Right. Um, so that's pretty critique. That's one Poll. The other poll is, of course, where you actually manipulate an experiment. You put some controls on it, um, and you try to, you know, sort of give a, a treatment, if you will, right? So you can't put people in a lab and test them, right? Um, but you go to that kind of well. ground saying, well, yeah, well, you couldn't, right? <laughs> like, you have rules about that now, at least. Um, <laughs> and, and so you put, like, you know, like, you, you basically give them some kind of treatment that, you know, you hold everything else as constant as possible and see if they change their reaction. So, for example, um, a work came out in 2010 in the American Political Science Review, on kind of the rule of what they call cousinage in Mali. Um, basically this idea that people were cousins, even though they weren't, but like it did create kind of cross ethnic ties that reduced ethnic tension. And they found that in fact it did, right? And so basically they showed them videos and what they all they changed was the name of the person doing it to see like, do people identify more with their ethnic group, more with um, their cousins? Not surprisingly if you had both, it was more so, but basically they, they showed that it reduced ethnic um, like th this identity basically reduced the tendency toward ethnic conflict. But the third category, which is the one most similar to what you just described in economics, Chris, um, we do see that as well. And so there's a, a famous example from 2004, also in the American Political Science Review by a guy named Daniel Posner um, called The Political Salience of Cultural Difference, Why Chua's and Tumbukas Are Allies in Zambia and adversaries in Malawi. And basically it looked at these two ethnic groups and says, okay, so when we think about ethnic conflict in Africa, which is a big topic of discussion, why do ethnic groups you know, end up in conflict? Is it really you know, just because they have fundamentally different cultures and they're just necessarily gonna be in conflict or is it the political strategies that are being adopted by elites in the country, the structure of the system and so forth? And so they found these groups where, oh, isn't this interesting? In this country, they're allies and in this country, their opponents. Why is that, right? And basically, what they found was that in in the one country, and I always have to look up to see which ones they're allies in. They're allies in Zambia, right? Um, in in Zambia, they were both smaller groups. They were both smaller, you know, percentages of the population. Um, and so they banded together. Um, they shared enough common interests, and the parties kind of tried to mobilize them together, and that ended up making them allies, right? 
Whereas in Malawi, they were both big enough that they were basically, you know, when parties appealed to them, they appealed to them more in a conflictual way. Um, and they ended up um, being on kind of opposite sides of the political aisle, which basically showed, I mean, like, look, these groups don't have to be allies or or enemies, right, or opponents. They could be either one. It depends a lot on political mobilization strategy. So basically, decisions matter in politics. Um, so we do see that kind of research in, in comparative politics. Uh, Mitch, do we see this kind of uh, natural experiments showing up in other parts of American politics besides sort of labor theory, the kinds of things that uh, David Card received a Nobel for this year? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, one of the areas where you see it uh, sometimes is, is uh, basically like advertising and media analysis. So basically you go in and you present people with um, um, hypothetical candidates, for example, and you just change like one or two things about them. Mm -hmm. So you say like, here is a candidate, let's swap out the picture of the guy and make it a picture of a woman and see, you know, exact same credentials, exact same biography, um, what happens. Um, or, you know, you swap out something else, like, you know, maybe you change out like, you know, wherever they got their education from or something like that, you know, so you can kind of experiment to see how yep. do people's evaluations of candidates change depending on demographics or other characteristics. Um, right. Or even the names, right? If, well, if you know, the names, name yeah. sounds but, more more white or more black or more mis Hispanic, like that actually yep. <laughs> that actually has an impact. Yep. Now, to be clear here, I should mention because because I want to be uh, I want to be this pedantic fellow. Uh, what you're describing is uh, methodologically experimentalism, which is right. something that uh, political scientists really do wade into. What Card was doing, though, was a natural experiment, which meant true, he, yeah. he yes. wasn't controlling something in the lab. He wasn't manipulating uh, right. names of candidates or changing subtle things. He was actually seeing, oh, here's a here's a space in the actual policy world where I can get variation and otherwise control other factors, and I can evaluate things in the real world. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, so, I guess I mean, the immediate thing, I guess, would just be uh, comparisons between states, um, yeah. which happens a fair amount. I mean, where you basically say, like, here's a particular policy. Um, and, you know, you can basically like analyze like, okay, um, I don't know, South Dakota put in place some policy, North Dakota didn't. Let's yep, see what, exactly. what happens between these yep. two, right? We can kind of assume that North and South Dakota are pretty similar in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, do that. Now, of course, just like Andy was describing, you know, it becomes more difficult if your comparison is like, you know, California and um, Oklahoma or something like that, you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah. but you can do a lot of comparison yeah. between, between states. Yeah, you can do that for laws. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's a whole sort of cottage industry within sort of American political science that is dedicated to just looking at, uh, it's sort of like comparative politics, but within the 50 states, essentially. Um, so you can look at particular policies, but you can also look at um, other sorts of legal or constitutional features. Uh, you know, different states have different sorts of constitutions, constitutional variations on, you know, whether or not they allow, you know, for like term limits on state legislatures, for example. That's a, there's a lot of really interesting research on the states that have term limits versus those that don't. Um, there's been some interesting work done on, so the state of Nebraska, for example, has a legislature that is technically nonpartisan. So if you're running for the state legislature, you can't run under the party label. Um, and, you know, so you can compare Nebraska next to a neighboring state to see, like, what sort right. of impact that has. Um, so there's a lot of other other sorts of, you know, quasi-natural experiments that you can look at, you know, across the states. So in addition to thinking about natural experiments, this Nobel Week has also prompted me to think about 
the Nobel Prize in economics more generally. So if you'll permit me here, just looking back at Nobel Prize winners of the last 20 years or so. Back in 1998, uh, the winner was Amartya Sen for contributions to welfare economics. In 2001, Joe Stiglitz won for markets, uh, assessing markets of, uh, with asymmetric information. Uh, importantly for me in political psychology in 2002, Danny Kahneman won for uh, essentially founding the field of behavioral economics. And then, uh, let's see, uh, Thomas Schelling, a uh, famous uh, scholar for nuclear deterrence and the uh, economics of, of essentially military campaigns, wins in 2005. We get Paul Krugman winning in 2008 for trade pattern uh, behavior. Eleanor Ostrom, uh, 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 a very profound scholar, and uh, Matt's pumping his fist. This is an IU scholar. Uh, wins in um, in 2009 for thinking about uh, dealing with collective action issues, especially economic governance of the commons. Um, I could keep going here, and I will. Uh, let's see, a couple more. Uh, Richard Fowler wins in 2017, also for contributions to behavioral economics. Uh, Esther Duflo um, and Abhit Ban uh, Banerjee win in uh, 2019 for um, their experimental approaches for alleviating global poverty. All of these people have really pronounced influences in political science and in um, generating political science scholarship. Right. Is it one the the negative read on our field is simply that we're writing the coattails of very brilliant economists. But another way of reading this is a lot of the economists who are most recognized for their work are are able to do so because their work has important real world policy implications. And so they're essentially being rewarded for thinking like political scientists. Mm -hmm. Get by that? Yeah, kind of. I mean I, <laughs> I, I like I think so I'm not a quantitative person. So take this for with a grain of salt because I'm not the I'm not in, even like close to the best critic of this, right? But my my sense of quant work that gets done in political science is it is kind of um, lesser version of what economists do, right? That they do kind of better, higher level quant work. But at the same time, if they just stay in the realm of economic theory, I think it is less interesting at some level. So they come down and they play in our. So maybe you can make a case that it, this should be more like a a Nobel Prize in social science, right? Um, and <laughs> and they should, um, you know, and they should award more broadly. But I think it would come down to, you know, I mean, the economic, economists seem to have these kind of higher level skills than a lot of our poli sci quant colleagues. Um, not to throw my own field under the bus, but I'll throw the quant <laughs> in there. Um, can you tell I'm not a big quantitative fan? Uh, I can. I think there is a lot of good quantitative work that's done by political scientists. I will say I this: write the coattails, right? Like, does that make yeah. sense? Like, I, I think political science is pretty good at generating problems, which yeah. economists then offer methodological yeah. solutions for. I, I think agree. economists are good for offering models that political scientists then steal to apply to a wide <laughs> range of policy problems. And so, in yeah. some ways, I think our work is generative for each other. Right. Right. Here's my question, though, guys, as we wrap this up. If you could uh, ask the Alfred Nobel uh, Foundation, which, by the way, gets its money from the dynamite that I alluded to at the beginning of this ah. uh, of this podcast, <laughs> would you... That, that deserves an explanation, Chris. Whoa, whoa, you got to back up. And explain. Okay, so Alfred Nobel, uh, I don't, um, this, is, this is mostly sort of colloquial back, back story, but uh, Nobel made his money essentially by... Uh, 
formulating dynamite, uh, which blowing stuff up. <laughs> yep, which he, which he initially believed would actually lead to great peace, but in the wake of World War One and the clear indication that dynamite would not be a force for peace in the world, but a force of greater and greater destruction, he took his considerable wealth and endowed prizes for the advancement of scholarship in the sciences as well as in economics and literature and as well and importantly a prize to uh, dedicated towards uh, fostering peace in the world hence the nobel prizes the um here's Thank my you. question yeah absolutely if you were going to expand the nobels to include a political science nobel well first of all would you do that do you think political science is uh, warrants a nobel much as economics does no i would just i would give it a I would do a social science one and call it good enough. Okay, I mean, so, so social science in addition to economics or fold? No, econ- no fold economics in there. Social science. Okay, that would uh, so you've already you've already angered the economists. Yep, uh, and you're going <laughs> to open up the door for sociologists and anthropologists and, and so forth. The economists could use a little competition. I mean, okay, well, if anybody <laughs> knows competition, it's economists, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. They can dominate. They can be the Yankees of the prize. <laughs> sure, sure. They won't win every year, so that'll be all right. That'll be good for them. Give them a little humility. Are there <laughs> political scientists who do not really operate in the realm of economics that you might want to see, see considered shortlisted for a Nobel, a social science Nobel? I mean, you know, I'm a political theorist first and foremost, so <laughs> I think we really need to sort of revamp how we're thinking about this. Um, um, political theory, you know, philosophy has a lot of downstream implications, right? Um, so if I were to imagine a, um, a Nobel Prize in, let's just say, sort of political science, study of politics or whatever that include political theorists. I mean, there's a lot of interesting people you could put on that list, right? Um, from your sort of proper political scientists to your political philosophers. If I had to put a political philosopher, um, I don't know, I mean, maybe do um, Alasdair McIntyre, perhaps, um, one of the most important yeah, um, yeah. political philosophers really in the 20th century. He's still alive, so he could That's still important. receive. The person must be alive to win. He's like, he's like in his 90s. He's, he's, he's way up there, so we got to get on this stat. Um, but <laughs> But I mean, so he's really important in yep. sort of, I mean, he used to be a Marxist, um, but he sort of revised I, his thinking. I got better. Well, he, revi- he revised his thinking and basically he's a virtue ethicist. Um, basically, he has an Arist- Aristotelian sort of understanding of ethics and politics. And actually, um, there's some recent work that's come out, which I've not read, some recent work that's come out that is actually trying to apply sort of his sort of approach to uh, Aristotelian approach to you know social and political theory apply that to critiques of liberalism and capitalism, for example. Um, and so there's some interesting work being done there. So Charles Taylor would is also yeah. also up there. Yeah. All right, all right. You all get one. You get one. So McIntyre's McIntyre's Matt's pick. Uh, Mitch, uh, who should be shortlisted for a Nobel Prize in political science? Um, I mean, if we're going to do like political science in terms of uh, American politics, I mean, there, there are a couple of names that sort of come out. I mean, probably the first name that immediately sort of like springs to mind is, is like Larry Bartels um, in terms of American political science. Um, um, I mean, I, I see Matt as like protesting, but I, I, I do have to say like, I mean, no matter what one thinks of, of Bartels, and I will say like my one time that I met him um this will probably not win me points. Not that I'm ever going to meet him again, but um, he was not particularly friendly, and I was no. I, I was not uh, endeared to him in terms of his 
again, uh, Professor Bartels, thank you for listening to this podcast. We're glad you're right. faithful. If listener. he's listening to this podcast and wants to write me a nasty note, at least I was noticed, like which I wasn't when I saw him before. Anyway, so <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, I think we were both there for that, weren't we? I yeah, think we were. He, he, was, wow. he, he just like could not be bothered to to talk to at least to me. I don't think lowly grad students. Yeah, I tried. But anyway, uh, but at any rate, his contributions to the field have been really significant. And um, I mean, I'm particularly thinking of, I mean, for me, especially, like, I mean, he's written a lot of stuff, obviously, and I've read a, a lot of his stuff. But um, in particular, I'm thinking about his 2016 book, Democracy for Realists. And I think that book itself um, really did, in a lot of ways, sort of encapsulate what what political science and American political science has known into sort of what ails American democracy right now. Um, and I think his sort of like practical application of, uh, of those, you know, a lot of what we have learned about, you know, quantitatively and qualitatively about American democracy um, applied to the issues now is, is a really pretty substantial contribution. I mean, to both, both to the field and also then to like politics and, and American, just our entire American experiment more generally. Um, so, so I think I would probably put him first, but if I was going to put somebody else, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'm allowed to weasel in a second nomination too, but no, Chris is like saying, that, okay, fine. I was going to say Catherine Kramer, so I'm going to weasel her in anyway. But, oh. you know, <laughs> but, but, but I do think she's really important too. I mean, again, both for methodological and for substantive reasons, I think she's been really important for speaking of like experiments for, uh, but not necessarily experiments, but really like advancing the idea of having field work in American political science. So rather than having American political science be sort of like economics, light um really saying that you know we need yeah. american political science to actually go out into the field and uh and talk to people and, and do like more rigorous field work in that sense and i think she's she's done a lot and and of course her substantive work is really significant too so there, there you go there's my two nominations for for american po uh, political scientists okay andy you got a short list um hmm it's, I mean, if you're going to the American side, I would also just toss Bob Putnam's name in there because I think oh, you stole mine, you weasel! I'm not, I'm not gonna, <laughs> you talk about Putnam. If I was going to go on the comparativist side, um, James Scott would be high on my list. I think yeah, that's a good his, call. His yep. pushing of like, I mean, first of all, like helping us to understand what, kind of how do you how do you think about political action if you're on the margins, um, and then just help helping us think about the very destructive implications of state power and the many ways it gets misused. Um, I think he's a really thoughtful, um, well-rounded comparativist. And any, any, I mean, he kind of crosses over into the, you know, comparative political science, but also anthropology. Um, so there's a kind of richness and depth to his qualitative work that's really appealing, I think. No, that's that's a that's a smart pick too. Um, now I'll make the case for Bob Putnam. Putnam has published extremely widely international politics and religion and politics. Mm -hmm. He's thought about uh, the social contract in the United States, and a lot of his work revolves around issues of how we come to essentially subvert our narrow atavistic rationality for some kind of communitarian notions, mm -hmm. even in an otherwise self-interested space. And I think that holds real merit and bearing for not only our political present, but our political future. So mm -hmm. uh, Putnam's on my list for sure. Yeah. I, for younger scholars, some into the short list for the future, maybe, um, James Robinson and Darren Asamoglu have been doing mm -hmm. just great work yeah. for a decade and a half now 
on the and it, it verges on economics so they possibly mm-hmm. could be the running for the actual award but the <laughs> idea of what makes uh, uh societies thrive what kinds of social structures and social institutions create better prosperity and better governance uh and what leads to essentially totalitarianism so i'm right. I, I think their work is really exemplary as well and there, there are plenty of others and uh, this is just a very small subset of, yeah. of folks that come to mind very quickly so um those are our, our short list i don't know i the more i think about this the more i think considering that the market is only one major social institution that improves people's lives much like medicine is one fast of improving people's lives i think good governance is something that improves people's lives and isn't completely explained yeah. by the peace prize i think a nobel in political science is warranted nobel committee if you're listening you got the money let's make this happen yeah yeah here here <laughs> If you have a nomination for the Political Science Nobel Prize and it's not one of us, please go ahead and email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. You can always get a hold of the whole station at channel3900 at gmail.com. Lots of great stuff on the channel. I've been saying this for weeks now, but uh, Avatar with Academics is coming to a noble conclusion. Give it a listen. It's fantastic. There's lots of other good stuff on the channel as well. Thanks for listening to us. And until we're back in your podcast feed again, happy Nobel week and go Royals.